And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in, their, in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied on the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up again, up, and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of the, his firstborn shall he lay his, its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall, how he, shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Well, church, we... Uh a couple of weeks ago, returned to the book of Joshua after a hiatus for Thanksgiving and Advent. And at that point, as we opened and began to look at chapter six, we saw that the Israelites had this very large problem before them in the city of Jericho. And yet the way they had strategized to overcome those problems was not God's plan at all. In fact, God's plans and his ways to overcome the obstacles in our lives often defy our our best thinking and our approaches or even uh, any solution that we could begin to imagine. Yet every solution that he provides in some way or another, God glorifies his name in that solution and he deepens our faith in the process because those solutions normally test our faith and our willingness to obey him. Ultimately, as the Israelites at Jericho, and as we often will find in our modern context, God responds with overwhelming faithfulness to his people when they trust him and they obey him. 
But as we began to look last a couple of weeks back at this famous story, I told you that we would not gloss over the hard parts of the chapter, which is, we never heard the hard part in Sunday school. But what was just read, that's the hard part. And this is the Sunday that we deal with that. What are we to make of this morning's passage? It's a hard set of verses, isn't it? It describes the destruction, the extermination of everyone in the city, men, women, children, all the animals, everything destroyed, burned. And this is the first of several cities where this will be the result of the conquest and the taking of the promised land. Passages like this have been fodder through the centuries for atheists, skeptics, even Christians who have could not come to grips with it. I mean, in our own small group, as we looked at this passage, we, we looked at each other and we had to admit, this is an uncomfortable set of verses. What's going on here? Why this response? And it's been a problem through the centuries. Back in the second century, there was a guy by the name of Marcion. His dad was a pastor. So of course, most problems come from pastor's kids, right? Uh, but in this case, he, he grew up, he was a shipbuilder, a, a successful ship captain. He, he comes back to the faith and he begins to teach and becomes a pastor himself. But in time, he, he began to have issues. He had issues with the Old Testament. He ended up rejecting the entirety of the Old Testament, claiming that this creator, vengeful God named Jehovah was actually a lesser God than almighty God. He began to synthesize Christianity with Gnosticism. And he said, Jehovah was a lesser God, an evil God who creates the world and does all these things without almighty God's knowledge. And then when almighty God realized what Jehovah was up to, he sent Jesus Christ to earth to, to fix it and to settle the accounts. And so as a result, Marcion ultimately creates his own Bible. Uh, he rejects all of the Old Testament, all of the gospels except for Luke, and all of the epistles except for 10 of the Pauline epistles. And he, he does this and he accumulates this. In fact, it was kind of as a reaction to Marcion that those early church fathers had to say, okay, what are the books that have come down to us that are recognized as being the, the written word of God that God spoke through the apostles and prophets? And he spurred, spurred, spurred that decision-making process. In our own day, we have not Marcion, but we have guys like Richard Dawkins, a popular atheist, a speaker, author, who wrote in his book, The God Delusion, the following words. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Dawkins apparently loves his adjectives, right? And strings them together. Dawkins and others use passages such as our text this morning 
to justify the condemnation of Christianity, to justify their own atheistic worldview or their own belief system. And while we do not agree with Marcion and with Richard Dawkins, they are bringing to the forefront a tension that we are presented with in the scriptures about God. We can't ignore it. We have all these passages in both the Old and the New Testament that paint a portrait of God being loving and gracious and merciful and compassion. Yet at the same time, we have these other passages which are very hard and seem at first glance to contradict the benevolent passages in the picture that they paint. So what are we to do with this? What do we do with this tension? How do we reconcile these differences and the seeming contradictions that are contained in the actual word of God itself? Well, John Huffman in his writing and teaching on the book of Joshua actually encourages us to grapple with the tension. Don't ignore it, don't run from it. Face it head on, this tension that is here that inevitably says God is so much bigger than the box that we often want to fit him in and wrap a bow around it. That God is bigger than the boundaries and the preconceived ideas that we have about him. That God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God is outside of creation itself. And so, These challenges that we have, we can't ignore them. We shouldn't run from them. We have to accept it and we have to deal with it. And he encourages us to deal with it in this chapter through recognizing some some key truths and observations. First of all, God is the same God in both the Old and the New Testament. Those like Marcion and, and even... I mean, I talked to somebody recently who who told me, yeah, I believe the Bible, the red letters, the red letter portion of the Bible. That's what I believe. People who come to the scriptures and they attempt to paint the Old Testament God as cruel and genocidal and vindictive and the New Testament God as loving and gentle and gracious. And I worship the New Testament God, not the Old Testament God. People who are doing this, they are either incredibly ignorant or they are deliberately manipulating the scriptures to push their own agenda. Because both testaments teach us the absolute unchangeable nature of God. For example, in Malachi chapter three, verse six, the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, God is saying in this instance, you should be thankful that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because if I were not Israel, I would wipe you off the map right now. But I, out of my grace, am remembering my covenant promises to Abraham on David on your behalf. You go to the New Testament and you see the Apostle James tell us that every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Both Testaments go to great lengths to declare the holiness of God, his hatred of sin and the justice of sin towards sin that must be satisfied. Both Testaments go to great lengths to demonstrate the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God for those who seek it and for those who desire it. 
So to cherry pick verses that we like and then throw out the ones that we don't like, when we do this, we end up creating God or a God in our own image. Now, now obviously this is unbiblical. The second commandment, commandment forbids us to make God in our own image. But it's also, when you stop and think about it, very short-sighted. It's irrational. I mean, when you stop and you pause and you consider what those actions do to, to pick what we like about God in the Bible and just dis discard the rest, this leaves us with an anemic God. I mean, is a deity that you have figured out, that checks all of your boxes, that fits so neatly and nicely in your preconceived box about who God is, is that really a God worth worshiping? I mean, should not God burst all of our presuppositions? Should not God be so above our thoughts and preconceived ideas that we should inevitably be left with those times where we have to scratch our head and say, I don't know. Isn't that who God should be? Shouldn't God be smarter than you? Right? He should be, right? Peter Craigie, in his book, The Problem of War in the Old Testament, addresses the temptation to relieve this tension by doing this dichotomy and this separation, saying, okay, there's the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. I believe these portions, not these portions, or to explain away the hard passages in some metaphorical, allegorical, humanistic way. He says, we have to resist that temptation. He said, there's really only two options that are legitimate. He said, one is you could honestly arrive at the point in your life and just simply say, you know what? I reject all of it. I don't believe any of it. And so you throw out the entirety of the Bible. That is one logical conclusion that you could make. He said, the other one, of course, is no, I believe it all, including the hard parts, even if I don't totally understand it and can't always reconcile it until glory. But this middle ground, uh-uh. He says this, to oversimplify a very complex issue, the canon of scripture places us in a take it or leave it situation. Either alternative may be chosen in honesty, but the logic of a midway position is dangerous. And why is it dangerous? Because the two Testaments are so interconnected and they are so interdependent upon one another. When you start taking out of one Testament and inevitably affluences the other Testament, it's a whole, take it or leave it. Those are the logical options before us. So when we come to the scriptures and we compare the passage in Joshua with the passages in say Isaiah or Luke or Romans or Revelation, these passages present us with a very consistent, clear, unified picture of God's character and his response to sin. And what is that response? We see it in chapter six beginning in verse 17, that God judges sin, but he does so consistently. In verse 17, the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. 
and verse 24, uh, verse 21, and then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. You see, there's a couple of words here repeated over and over again. What are they? Devoted destruction. Devoted destruction. It's a, the same Hebrew word, actually. It's the, it's the word hiram or cognates of hiram. And the concept here is that there are some things that are dedicated to God. They're consecrated to God for his glory, for his use and obedience to him. Some of those things that may be consecrated to him, he will keep and he will use like the, 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 the uh, you know, vessels and the gold and silver and the treasury of the temple in the case of Jericho. Other instances, they'll be absolutely destroyed and burned like a burnt offering. You know, in the, in the Hebrew old commandment, they would bring uh, lambs and animals and there was a, a form of an offering, a burnt offering. The whole thing was consumed in consecration to God in worship of God for his honor because it belonged to him. And so he wanted it all burned up. The priest didn't get the ribeye and the helpers didn't get the tenderloin. It was all burned up because it belonged to God. And so it was dedicated to him. And so what we see happening here in this passage is God is saying, this city and everybody in it are devoted to my glory. They are to be offered up as a burnt offering to me for my glory. And it has to do with the sinfulness of these people. These verses, they teach us a couple of important things about God and sin. First of all, because of his holiness, his hatred of sin, God commands the Canaanites be totally destroyed and exterminated in Jericho. As shocking as it is, it's based out of something that is very simple and consistent throughout the scriptures. God hates sin. God does not ignore sin. God does not turn his back on sin, our sin, the sin of the world. God does not wink at us when, oh, it's okay, I under. He, he does not wink at our sins. Sin is serious. Earlier, in Leviticus chapter 19, God declares to the people, you must be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. He will repeat this throughout the scriptures. In Habakkuk chapter one, we see again an example of the holiness of God. We went to the book of Habakkuk a couple of years ago. If you remember in chapter one, God gives Habakkuk this vision of what's coming. Because of the rebellion, the false worship, the sinful behavior and actions of the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, God tells Habakkuk, because of this, I am going to send the Babylonians and they are going to wipe everybody out, destroy Jerusalem, taken into prison, into exile. And Habakkuk says, ho, oh, oh, time out. Time out for just a moment. Lord, I get it. We, the people are sinning. We're in a bad place spiritually. But the Babylonians? I mean, the Babylonians are so much worse than us. And in his arguing with God, he says this, 
something, he says something about God, but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? In other words, God, I know that we're bad, but they are so much worse. How, why are you gonna punish us and ignore them? And God says, oh, don't worry. <laughs> their day's coming. I'm not gonna ignore their sin either, just as I won't ignore the sin of my people. Why is this? Well, the apostle John tells us this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. God is holy. His hatred of sin is absolute. And what we have here in chapter six is that God's long suffering and patience with the Canaanite people has now come to an end. He has been patient with them for at least 600 years, if not more. You see, back in Genesis chapter 15, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, he says, Abraham, you're gonna have lots of children. They're gonna grow into a nation. And for a while, your people are gonna go down to Egypt and they're gonna end up being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Why 400 years? Why not 300 years? Why not 100 years? Why not 50 years? Why 400 years? Verse 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites, this is the Canaanites. They're one of the tribes, many of the seven nations of the Canaanites. For the iniquity of the Amorites, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. What's this iniquity that God speaks of? In other words, it's gonna take 400 years, or actually 600 years, 400 years of sin. No, it's gonna take 600 more years for them to fill up the cup of my wrath until my patience is no more, and I'm gonna pour out my judgment upon them because of their iniquity. Well, what iniquity are we talking about here? Well, in the preceding books, especially Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God warns his people several times about the Canaanites and he warns them about the sin of the Canaanites. And he explicitly points to the fact that as a pra they, they, they practiced child sacrificing. They burned their children on the altar as part of their religious worship. Can you imagine that? I mean, by the way, you notice how God doesn't call for the destruction of Egypt, the total annihilation of Egypt, why not? I mean, the Egyptians didn't sacrifice their children for crying out loud. They didn't go to that extent of depravity, but they sacrificed their children. They, they participate in satanic worship. They practice sorcery and and trying to commune with the dead and, and dark religious practices. Their, their idolatrous behavior seemed to know no bound. Their sexual perversion was extensive and it included incest and bestiality and homosexuality and adultery and ritualistic prostitution. So serious is the sin of the Canaanites that God warns them over and over again. And we think, find things like Leviticus 18, where he says, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. And that these things refers to the preceding verses where he lays out some of the things that I just mentioned to you as examples. 
He says, for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these, what's the next word? Say it out loud with me, abominations. You see the seriousness of what we're talking about here with the Canaanites? You shall do none of these abominations, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. God goes so far in this passage to say this. He says, if ever the Canaanite sin comes into a city in the promised land among God's people, the rest of the nation is obligated to go up, absolutely destroy the city, kill, exterminate everyone in that city, burn it to the ground, never build another city again on that location. If the children of Israel in a city participate in this kind of activity. He says to the fathers, if your children participate in the sin of the Canaanites, then you are to report it to the religious leaders and when they are stoned to death, you are to throw the first stone. Let that sink in. Do you think God winks at sin? Do you think God takes sin seriously? He does because of his holiness his righteousness. We can't conceive of the height of his holiness and his righteousness. And so his judgment on the Canaanites was a form actually of reconsecration for the land and for his people. Israel is given very tight parameters. They're not given carte blanche to exterminate the Moabites or the Edomites or the people of Lebanon, or the people of Egypt, or they, need a, they are told it's the Canaanites. They have to be completely wiped out. You, Israel, are my hand and instrument of judgment against heinous, unrepentant sin, against people who have hardened their heart against me. And so Jericho warns all nations. It warns all of us of the danger of hardening our heart towards God of giving ourselves over to sin. There's a consequence in the eyes of our God. First reason why he does this is because of his holiness. The second reason why God orders the total destruction of Jericho is the dangerous nature of sin. Now church, most of us understand in our physical world, there are some things that we just should not do. But this guy didn't get the memo. I mean, look at this guy. So back in July, police in Pennsylvania were called to a man's house who had a 15-foot constrictor, and they found him there in cardiac arrest with a snake wrapped around his neck, choking him to death and around his chest. They could not get the snake off of him until finally an officer shot it in the head. Then they were able to free him and do CPR to save his life. Now, let me ask you a question. Does, does that actually really surprise any of you? <laughs> I mean, what do you think is gonna happen when you put a 15-foot constrictor around your neck? Sooner or later, he's going to squeeze you and choke you. 
right? I mean, you play with fire, you get laid down with dog, you rise up with. I threw that in for you cat lovers to show you that I'm you know, somewhat sympathetic to you. Thank you, I appreciate that. I don't know how to take that. Are you saying that if you lay down with me, you rise up with fleas? Catherine, that's not true, but I don't know how to take that statement. But anyway, right? The dangerous nature of sin, as, as true as that principle is in the physical world, it's even more true in the spiritual world. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, says this about sin. He says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump, a little yeast will spread and take over the entire lump of dough. And he's speaking about sin. What's his point? He's saying a little sin that is tolerated, that is not dealt with and repented of and mortified, a little sin that is left alone will metastasize and it will grow and it will come to consume your entire life. A little sin in a church that a church ignores and turns its head against and kind of winks at it and tolerates it, that will create conditions where sin grows and begins to spread and pollute and contaminate the whole body of Christ, putting it in danger. The dangerous nature of sin has to affect our understanding of why God would command this judgment against Jericho and the Canaanites. From our perspective, man, this is really hard. Why would God do such a thing? From God's perspective, I don't know that it was hard at all because he's doing something out of love to protect his covenant children from something that he knows will choke them to death. Who of us as fathers, when we know our children are being threatened by something, will not move heaven and earth to protect our children. We'll do it in a heartbeat because our perspective is different. Our heart towards those, those children is different than others. And God's heart towards his children of Israel, he knew, he knew that the Canaanites would be a powerful source of temptation. He knew the Israelites had been living in Egypt and while they were there, what happened to them? They ended up turning their back against him. They ended up adopting Egyptian religious practices and ethical standards. And he knew what would happen in the wilderness. The Israelites had come into contact with the Moabites and other people. And every time this happens, they seem to backslide and turn away from God. And so you have God sending plagues. You have God opening up the earth, swallowing. And thousands of Israelites are judged for their sin because of the contamination of the exposure with these other people. And so God knows that when they come to Canaan, there's a a real, real likelihood. And of course, he's God, he's omniscient, he knows everything anyway, that they're going to be tempted. And so he commands this, this command to absolutely exterminate them all. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 1, he says, you're going to be facing seven very strong nations. And then in verse two, God says this, when your Lord, your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. There's our language again, right? You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters 
to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. God's judgment of sin is absolutely consistent. In successive generations, we're gonna read even at the end of Joshua and into Judges, they do not exterminate all the Canaanites. They leave little pockets and like a little yeast that spreads and takes over the whole lump of dough, those little pockets of Canaanites end up influencing the Israelites. So much so that they will ultimately experience the same devastating judgment of God upon them. In 721, the Northern Kingdom is wiped out, never to be heard of again because of their adoption of Canaanite religious and ethical practices. And then as we saw in Habakkuk, the same thing happens to Judah, but God in his mercy brings a remnant back from exile to continue the messianic line. But the prophet Isaiah, looking back at the history of his people and God's interactions concludes this, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. And the testimony of the book of Isaiah is God raising up the Assyrians, such a cruel people, to just demolish, devastate, and exterminate the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians to do the same for the southern kingdom. God is absolutely consistent in how he views sin. Old, Test, Old Testament history is an account of how the, the, this warning that God gives to his people plays out among them and how God sovereignly directs everything, including their judgment to the glory of his name. That's what the Old Testament contains. And he's consistent throughout the Old Testament. And he's consistent in the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, when Jesus is here, he's teaching, he's preaching, and he turns to the people of Israel and he says, because of your sin, because of the hardness of your heart, Within the lifetime of this generation, the Romans are going to come. They are going to destroy and wipe out Jerusalem and demolish the temple so that not one stone upon another will happen. It will be the worst experience Israel has ever experienced. And in 70 AD, God's hand of judgment in exact accordance with what Jesus promised and prophesied occurred. And it was horrendous. It was Jericho proportion devastation. And then as you page through the New Testament, you again come to the end of the scriptures where in the book of Revelation, God's consistent in his perspective towards sin and how he judges all of humanity. All who reject Jesus Christ in Revelation 20 will stand before him and give an account of their lives and of their sins and their rejection of him to forever be judged, separated from God for all of eternity. God is absolutely consistent in his perspective towards sin. He does not change, church. You've often heard me say that the gospel is a two-sided coin. On the one side is the good news. On the other side is the bad news. This right here 
This is the bad news. The bad news is that God does not wink at our sin, but he instead judges it. The good news is that Jesus stands in our place to receive God's judgment that our sins truly deserve to experience. That's the good news of the gospel. And this leads us to our final observation and the takeaway truth for this morning. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is the God of grace. In the, in the middle of this passage, as it's talking about devotion and destruction, devotion and destruction of the city, on at least three occasions, maybe four occasions, linked to those phrasing of destruction of the city, the total destruction of the city is also tagged along with it, the salvation of Rahab the prostitute. Three times this is stressed. Why is this? Because it shows that God, while absolutely judging sin, is eager and willing to bring into his family anybody who desires to turn from their sin and trust in him with faith. This is the testimony of God's word too. Yes, he judges sin out of his holiness, but God is gracious and loving and has provided salvation to all who will trust in him. And so when we come to the book of Hebrews, the author, as he lists all these men and women of great faith, concludes the listing of names with this example from chapter six. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God for she had given a friendly welcome to despise. God could justly extend grace to Rahab God could remain holy and righteous in extending mercy and grace to Rahab and her family because her descendant, Jesus, would 1,400 years later take on her sin and pay for them, experiencing God's judgment towards her sin on the cross of Calvary. And that same story is true for every one of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And that same story can be your story if you still persist in rejecting your heavenly father who loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. Just as Rahab and Jericho's destruction are linked together, so too is God's judgment of our sin and his overwhelming grace towards us linked together in the cross of Jesus Christ. So Christians, when you come to a passage like this, as hard as it is, it's meant to help us see the holiness of God and the grace of God that has been poured out upon us. It's meant to spur us on to worship our holy God who loves us so much that he himself took on flesh and experienced the very judgment that his holiness demands so that we could become brothers and sisters for all of eternity. Passages like this are meant to cause us to be humble, to come before God and praise his name. And if you are not a believer, 
If you've yet to surrender your life to Christ and turn to him, this passage is meant to be a warning to you. For as serious as it was for the Jericho, the people of Jericho to face the judgment of God at the sword of Joshua, how much greater is the judgment they face one day when it's the sword of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of time? Because that judgment from Joshua is temporal. The judgment to come is eternal. Prepare for that one by turning to Christ now while there is time. If you've yet to do so, come see us at the close of the service. We would love to sit down with you and, and talk more about where you are spiritually. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would pour your grace out upon those who believe and those who do not. For those of us who believe, Lord, we still sin every day. We need your grace. Give us the conviction of heart to see sin, at least in some way, close to, to how you do. Help us to see the severity of it, most communicated by what it took to pay for those sins, the death of our Savior. Lord, help us to pursue sanctification, to flee from all immorality, to be transformed into the image of Christ. May your spirit do that work in us. For those of us here, Lord Jesus, who are struggling with particular sins, besetting sins, addictions, would you give us eyes that can see the beauty of our Savior? Would you give us a heart filled with gratitude for the sacrifice of his life for our sins? May you give us strength, courage to battle and mortify the flesh. And Father, for the one who is here who doesn't know you, who has rejected you, who is yet to turn to Christ, would you give them a heart that loves Jesus and hates their sin and the hope that comes only in him for its forgiveness. In your name I ask these things, Jesus. Amen.